Regina Bain is a woman of contrasts. Her life is about threading the needle between complicated joy and melancholy. She lives between the world of the mind and the world of the heart. Above all, she is a woman who is willing to take the risks of speaking up and speaking out in a world that for this time requires conforming and alignment. Like Louis Armstrong, the man whose legacy she is called to protect and expand as the executive director of the Louis Armstrong House Museum and Archives, she says of herself, I am thinking about the choices that I am making, that I will make, about where I will use my voice and the repercussions of that and what I'm willing to risk. And for me, I choose to engage. Hello, and welcome to a new season of At The Podium with me, Patrick Huey. At The Podium is a multimedia platform that brings together people from a diverse background of lives, careers, and experiences who all share one thing in common. They have stepped fully into the transformative power of finding and raising their voices to make an impact on our world today. At The Podium holds a space for everyone to tell their stories, to be heard, and to bring us inspiration. Today, I'm thrilled to share the podium with Regina Bain. Regina Bain now serves as the executive director of the Louis Armstrong House Museum and Archives. She is an artist, leader, facilitator, and program designer with over 16 years of experience building nonprofit capacity for organizational growth. Previous to her appointment at LAM, Ms. Bain served as Associate Vice President of the Posse Foundation, a national leadership and college access program which helps to send teams of students or posses to top colleges and universities. At Posse, Ms. Bain helped to onboard and provide oversight for executive directors and Posse's 13 site offices and she helped to double Posse's STEM initiative. Ms. Bain's efforts helped to increase Posse's national student graduation rates for four consecutive years. Ms. Bain is committed to social justice. She facilitates and trains others to facilitate conversations on social identity, leadership, and group dynamics. She leads the Yale Black Alumni Association and serves on the Yale Board of Governors. Ms. Bain earned her BA in African American Studies and Theater from Yale University and received her MFA from the Yale School of Drama. Ms. Bain was also the first guest to appear on At the Podium in season one. Before we hear from Regina, I want to invite you to share At the Podium with the people in your lives. If you find our conversation today valuable, and I hope that you will, take a screenshot and share on your Instagram and tag at the podium underscore Patrick Huey. Or if you're on Facebook or LinkedIn, share our links there. Your shares, likes, and five-star written reviews help grow our audience and move us up the charts. I'm grateful for your support in this capacity. Okay, Regina. Welcome to At The Podium. I feel like this is a homecoming because when we first had the idea of doing this podcast, you were the first person we interviewed. 
And you have bloomed ever since. Bravo. I mean, it's been such a journey, Regina. I can't even tell you how much of a journey the past. Well, we did it in February of 2021. Okay. So it's been almost a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And like of dedication and persistence and growth for everybody. Mm-hmm. Everybody. When we first sat down, you had just started at the Louis Armstrong House Museum and Archives in Queens. It was the middle of the pandemic. We had kind of hoped that we were going to get out of it. And then I think we all kind of realized that we weren't going to get out of it. And mm-hmm. then We were all literally trying to wrap our minds around what had happened in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. So that was the the context of a year and a half ago. So I want to know how life has changed for you since that time. Much of it has not changed because I am a I'm still in the midst of pandemic. I want to I want to rise up and rise out, but I am cautious and conservative when it comes to my health and the well-being of myself and those around me. So I'm still a little bit inside of that and peeking out into the world. But one of the things that I am still conscious about and and the change for me is how grateful I am to have the things that I have. And to be able to experience the things that I can, because for a while, those things were taken away. Those people were taken away. And so when I get a second chance to experience, to be with, to connect, I'm so thankful for that. That ability to come together and touch people is so precious now. Mm-hmm. It is. And it it's fragile. So I'm struck by the fragility, the the fragility of life, the fragility of my life, of the people in the elders in my life, the fragility of them, the fragility of our institutions and how quickly they can break down. That's something that I have definitely been struck with, how fragile beauty is and how it has to be cultivated. Beauty is fragile and must be cultivated. It's fragile. Were you surprised? Even when it seems rooted, even when it's because there's a, a there's a, a strength, a beauty of strength, but even that is fragile. I think about that especially related to black women. The beauty of, of black women is often in our strength and how we we root down and we forge forward and we join hands and we make things happen. And we are fragile. And must be treated with care and must treat ourselves with care. And the institutions that we help to build that are related to health, that are related to racial well-being, that are related to democracy, that so many Black women are at the helm of in some ways, maybe not in name, but in work, is fragile. And we have to, we have to continue to have care. The last time that you and I spoke, you were reading Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. And and she supposes in the book, she states in the book that Black women are the mules of the world, which I think you're saying in a different way about the fragility and the beauty and the necessity of what Black women bring to the world and have brought to the world. I mean, Black women raised white women's babies Mm. and then went home at night and took care of their own children. 
And that continues to this day that has not stopped. And so I think it's interesting how you know that, that there is that fragility, particularly by those that are forgotten or overlooked in society. Mm-hmm. Moments like we've lived through really show the vulnerability of that. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about Louis Armstrong. Yep. Because you've had a year with him, intense an intense year with Louis Armstrong. And I am a huge fan of his work. Mm. And I have to say, it took me quite a while to find him and understand who he is in terms of the importance of music. Obviously, I know knew who he was, but I think there is a sort of watered down version of him that sort of distilled through a lot of how people view him. But when you really look at what he was doing, and the work that he was creating, he is on a par with a Beethoven or a Mozart or a Maria Callas in terms of, of the legacy, Ella Fitzgerald, in terms of what he was doing with his work. Am I overstating that? No, you are not. Louis Armstrong grew up in New Orleans, born either 1900 or 1901, depending on when who you believe. <laughs> um, he has two different birthdays that he's celebrated for. And he became America's first Black popular music icon, a megastar, the first Black person to be featured, featured billing in a Hollywood film, one of the first interracial duets, interracial recordings, one of the first people to have written in his contract that he had to be able to stay where he played when he traveled throughout America. He was a pioneer. He's coming off of the reverberations of slavery, of Jim Crow through civil rights, and trying to make it as an entertainer while being a skilled musical genius. When you talk to musicians about who Louis Armstrong is, because I'm not a musician, but when you talk to musicians, they talk about time, they talk about light, and they talk about pronouncing yourself with courage when they address Louis Armstrong that he was one of the first people to step forward from the bandstand to approach that microphone at the front and declare, I am a star, baby, listen to my trumpet. And he made it happen because he was so skilled at his trumpet. He's also known for his voice, things like What a Wonderful World, that kind of gravelly, I am who I am, my voice is not silky and smooth, but it's gorgeous, you better listen to it, was not what was being heard on the radio at that time. Mm. So he was one of the one of the earliest to come out and be have a popular presence with his true voice and self. It's a complicated person because he's a he's a man, he's a human being. He's often presented with the signature pieces of himself, which is often his smile, his signature yeah. smile, his signature handkerchief, his trumpet. But always with any entertainer, especially with any comedic entertainer, joyful entertainer, there's always complexity behind that. Mm. And that's something that we at the museum delve into because we want to know all of who he is, all of who he was, and the context, the historical context for how he thrived. How does his legacy impact you? Because you're touching Mm -hmm. it every day Mm -hmm. and you are an artist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think about the choices that we all make as artists, as individuals, to use our voice and the the modality with which we choose to use our voice. And that modality may be our art. 
It may be the things that we create for the world. That modality may be direct political speech or action or gestures. And all those choices come with repercussions. The choices Louis Armstrong made and didn't make and the repercussions that came that didn't come. He was a contemporary of Paul Robeson, amazing artist, Black man, whose career was was shut down because of what was he was thought of as a communist. There was a chance that that would happen to Louis Armstrong. He made a statement about the Little Rock Nine. People started to boycott who he was, his, his performances. Sponsors for a TV programs said, I don't think we should have him. People wrote into the FBI. He has an FBI file and said, I think he, he shouldn't have a passport. He shouldn't be traveling the world. And it was because allies like Bing Crosby spoke up for him that he was able to continue to have a career. So for me, I think about the choices that I am, that I am making, that I will make about where I use my voice, the modalities in which I use my voice and the repercussions of that and what I'm willing to risk. That is so important right now, because if you say, do portray the wrong thing, the repercussions right now, we don't, we, we don't live in a time of great forgiveness. We live in a time of cancel, which is not historically not that unusual to what the time you're describing now mm-hmm. during the McCarthy period, when people's lives and careers were literally canceled because true or not true, they were thought to be sympathetic to communism. Mm-hmm. So it does make us think twice or think critically about how, when, and where we choose to speak. And in the midst of that critical thought, we make our choices. And for me, I'm, I choose, I choose to engage and it's so challenging in this space, in this arena, but it's so incredibly important because if we do not, if we stay silent, everything, everything will die. I know that's dramatic and I am dramatic, Um, but (laughs) it's somewhat the truth, dramatic. But it is somewhat the truth, literally with our earth and the environment, with our democratic structures, with our health and well-being, the stakes are high. And I'm sure it has felt this way throughout different eras of American history, of global history. But I I feel it now. And I'm always amazed when this this human experiment (laughs) makes it through and we actually um, have... um, that we survive as a species. I'm, I'm kind of amazed at that. <laughs> and, and I want to put in the work to make sure we continue to thrive. One thing that I have really thought about over the past two years is that none of it's guaranteed. None of it's guaranteed. It's been my biggest takeaway from the last two years that it's not guaranteed. And you have to speak up and speak out. Mm-hmm. Because when you don't, there's a proliferation of stupidity that happens when the people who know right from wrong, who have the facts, who have the answers, don't speak up. It's interesting, the, the power of voice, mm-hmm. which I had never sort of really thought about in terms of Louis Armstrong or anything like that. But anyone who has a platform, who has people who tune in to watch, listen, and see them, have a tremendous amount of power. And... I look at someone like Louis Armstrong. I think about you. I think about 
anyone who has any position where people look, listen, and, and, and feel them, we have to speak. We don't have to be disrespectful or rude, but we have to speak the truth of what it is that's happening and what our experience is. And I think, I think I was not always keyed into that as I am now after the past two years. And I know that you, when you, you first started this podcast, Mm -hmm. you talked about it not being political. Yeah. (laughs) And that shifted a bit in your personal, your personal and political views have, have come forward. How did that transformation take place? (laughs) How are you feeling about that? Well, I think a lot of this podcast has been, I don't want to say a catharsis for me. I don't think that's the right word, but I think it has allowed me to step fully into my artist self, which lay dormant for two decades. And when I started to talk to people, when I started to write my newsletters, I couldn't help but speak the truth as I live it and breathe it and see it. And to your point, I couldn't be that concerned if people liked it or didn't like it. And I had to like speak what I know to be right and wrong, what I know to be the truth. And I know we live in a time of this and that, but there are truths. (laughs) There is right and wrong. And again, it's not about destroying another person or annihilating another person who doesn't agree with me, but it's stating what I believe and what I know to be true and stating it with conviction. And so that had to shift as I started to develop and grow, as I started to tap into the parts of myself as, a, as an artist that I don't think I would have applied to myself over the past two decades and until I started doing this podcast, honestly. And when I started waking up that part of myself, I had to, I had to speak my truth. That last time we talked, I was like, I didn't go too deep into my thoughts about September or, or January 6th. And now I'm like, well, that was incredibly crazy and incredibly wrong. And it's, it is literally a textbook case of treason. And we have to say that because if we don't, we normalize it. Mm-hmm. If we don't call it by its name, we mm-hmm. make it normal. And I think that's what we have to start doing. And that's why we have, you know, we have to just call a thing a thing. Yeah. Agreed. And I think that's part of what has made this podcast so successful. But I'm curious what you think about that. So it has been successful. This podcast has been downloaded (laughs) thousands of views on all the social media platforms. People are responding. Yeah. Why, Why do you think that is? I think a lot of it has to do with the people who come on like yourself. I think we, well, it's, it's, it's so funny that you say that because literally I get emails, texts from people who will say, this is changing my life. What this person said changed my life. And so I think part of the success of the podcast has been the people who've come on and who have willingly shared parts of their lives with me as the factor for people listening. So I think that's been part of it. I also think, and and I and I felt this way from the beginning. I also think that I wanted to have a space where people could talk freely without mm-hmm. judgment. So I've had people come on and say things that I do not agree with. Right? I've mm-hmm. shot forty or forty or so of these right now. So I'm not going to agree with everything that the last forty people have said. But to create a space for people to to, to speak their truth and not beat them up for it, not sensationalize it, mm-hmm. not make them feel badly because they have a point of view that's different from mine. 
we don't have that kind of discourse right now. So I think anywhere you, anywhere you can bring people in together to talk, I think is really important. But I really I really think it's the people who've come on and who take the ride as far as they want to take it, you know? Have some cool friends. Have some cool friends. <laughs> I think what also helps is you and who you are and the space that you create. And I think part of what you've cultivated for yourself is, is this incredible community but this incredible sense of taking a leap of faith. Yeah. So you recently moved from California to yeah. Boston. Oh yeah. Very different climates <laughs> in multiple ways, not just environmentally. And so I'm curious about that transition in your life and about just broader leaps of faith that you've taken in your life, what mm-hmm. that means to you. It's been really hard. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny because I've been writing this book about embracing change and plan B and all of that, um, which I 100% believe in. But as I was going through this process at 51, now 51 years old, I'm like, oh, this is not as easy as it used to be, you know? And it's been a challenge. It's been a huge challenge and it makes me have even more respect for people who really can embrace the different things that come their way in their lives. But it's been hard. I'm not going to lie. It's been really hard. It's taught me a lot about myself, but I, I embraced it because that's just, that's, you know, I can't talk about change and then be mad about change. <laughs> it's just really hard. And I yeah. think, you know, when people are going through change, you have to give them a lot of grace. Mm-hmm. And when you're going through change, you have to give yourself a lot of grace because it is not easy. I think a lot of it's complicated by the fact that we just don't know. We just don't know in terms of how I'm still discovering how I've shifted over the past two years, how I've been impacted by the things that I've seen and witnessed through the last two years of this pandemic. And I think that is still being unraveled within me. And I know everyone's like rushing to get back to the way life was before, but you don't, you don't just turn a page on something like that, or at least I can't without really trying to wrestle with what it all meant and what, you know, how I shifted in that. I mean, how did the last two years affect you? It taught me a lesson in what it means to be alone Mm. and how important other people are. So I'm an introvert. I love quality alone time. I actually not only love it, I need it in order to to thrive. I think I was built for a pandemic in some ways. I'm like, oh, I have the skills to survive. I have the skills to survive this. I'm good. And there are limits to that. <laughs> there are there are limits to aloneness or to, to circles being, um, coming in. And I learned how critically important family is. It's just absolutely central to life. And I would see, I mean, of course, I, I have experienced that in another way during this pandemic. It has definitely changed me and how, and how I move through the world. I remember the first time I traveled alone over internationally overseas, 
And I remember writing something that said, I'm experiencing nostalgia for the loneliness of it Mm. and for the aloneness of it. I miss it. It was a thing of beauty, something to hold on to and remember. I I experienced loneliness like that as a thing of beauty, something to look at, something to, to learn from, but there are limits to that beauty. And I think that's something that we as a nation, especially young people, are experiencing that right now that how to thread the needle between the beauty of aloneness and the destruction of it. Oof. We don't know how to do it yet, <laughs> but, but I'm hopeful that um, people are, are awakening to the question of it and are um, in the midst of that struggle, that good struggle. There is beauty in melancholy. There's beauty in, I love, I love it. Yeah. Love it's why people love sad movies. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things I miss about Florida. I miss thunderstorms. Mm. I miss gray skies with, with power in the sky. There are storms up north, but they're, 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 they are of a different nature. There's something wow. about thunderstorms in, in the South and Florida that brings up melancholy for me. That, and I love it. I think people fear melancholy because there is a strength that is required to sit in a space of silence mm-hmm. in a space of reflection, which I equate with melancholy. I don't mm-hmm. always feel like it's sad, but there, I feel like there's just, we always, we, people need to be entertained because when you're left with your thoughts and you have to deal with yourself, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. people are not usually built for that. It's like, you know? no, I'm not thinking about that. No. Mm-hmm. But for me, the the other side of it is joy. And so thinking about the continuum of life and the balance of life, I need quiet, introverted, silent, melancholic, nostalgic moments. And then I need to let that go. And I need to burst into life with joy, complicated joy. And we've talked about joy before. Um, It's one of the reasons why I think Louis Armstrong is so beloved is because he allows people to experience joy. Mm. And welcomes that, makes space for that. What a wonderful world. Joyous song, incredibly melancholic. Yes, it is. It's both. I'm both. It's both. I think we get to be complex. Mm -hmm. Okay. You just talked about joy. And again, you were a first for me on this series of the Sunday Reflection which I'm doing one next week. So you were the first and I posted it (laughs) on Facebook Mm -hmm. and it had like 22,000 views of it, Regina. Mm, Wow. Yeah. I have no, I have have very little social media presence. So that you were, (laughs) that's all you, that's all you. Uh, So let me tell you what happened around Mm -hmm. Sunday reflection. I woke up on a Saturday Saturday morning, and I I was editing your work from the first episode that we shot, and something within me said, this needs to be posted. And so Saturday night, I've made that clip, two minute, two minute, like 10 second clip, found this beautiful music to go underneath it. And something inside of me said, this is what the world needs to hear today, that, there, that joy and happiness are not always related. And that you have to step out with your chest and your guts and move forward in your life. And I posted it and literally 
I was just watching the numbers tick up on Facebook on the post of it. Why do you think that that touched people so much? I'm not sure what I know what touches me when I'm when I'm scrolling through is that moment of, yeah, that makes sense. That's real. I see that. I've experienced that. And I think, or I want to experience that. And I think it's important for my life to experience that. And I think there's something about the truth of bodily moving forward that that is true for a lot of people because inertia sets in. So this idea of bodily moving forward is strong for folks. But when I saw the Sunday reflection, it was because my mother saw it first. Oh, did she really? Yes. Yes. <laughs> so that reflection has two parts. Part is talking about joy and happiness and moving forward. And the other is about the choices that I made, the yes that I made to go to college, the college I went to. And um, my mother saw it. And I had spoken about my mother in it. And she showed it to me. And she said, this is beautiful. Because I hadn't said the things that I said here in this space to her. I hadn't actually said those things to her that I appreciated the yes that she made, that she gave to me, to my life. And I don't know how other people experienced it, but my mother experienced it as a gift. I'm thankful for that, for you, for having that inspiration, for putting that out there. I think those words of, of saying what people meant to us and acknowledging the choice, the hard choices that they made for us, that that's important. Yeah. Those are the moments why I do this. Mm -hmm. And every guest that I've had has a moment like that mm. where they just drop into what is true and real. And I think that's why people, you asked me earlier, and I think that's probably why people like it because people drop into what's true and real for them. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing more compelling than someone telling their truth. Mm. Nothing more compelling. So are you telling your truth? Have you found your voice? Interestingly enough, though, I'm not, I am finding it through this medium, through this. I'm finding it when I write the newsletters mm -hmm. and the blogs for each person. That's what I, I feel like if a person really wants to hear my voice, it's there. Because here it's shared and it's shared on purpose. I, I want this to be the space of the, of, of the person who's sitting here with me. It's a shared space. And obviously, because there are other things that I'm looking at besides just sharing my story, I want to make sure that you look great, that we're in the right shot, all of that kind of <laughs> stuff. But where I really share my voice is in my writing. And again, it's something I had put down. I had not like put down like bad. I had just, I had just stopped doing it. I had just stopped writing. And then I was like, no, I have to write for this podcast. I have to write everything. And I have to, I have to tell the truth. So mm -hmm. it's, it's probably the greatest reflection of, of my voice are those newsletters, <laughs> which I'm going to make an ebook of them all. Something else that I learned during the pandemic, which we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. you know, that we don't have forever. That time is not just this frivolous renewable source resource mm -hmm. over and over again, that there are, there are expiration dates on all everything. There's also the, you can't sit around and wait for people to do anything for you. No, you cannot. You cannot. And so that freed me to create, mm -hmm. you know, and that's and the real creativity. The drive to create is there no matter what. No matter what and, 
it has to happen. Creators create, and you are definitively a creator and an artist whose whose voice comes out in different forms as actor, as journalist, as creator of experience, physical space and experiences for others. As writer, you create, creators create, and and it's okay if that form takes different shapes. What I really appreciate you saying is that this is a shared space. This, This conversation is a shared space, but then you are taking the writing as a moment of, of reflective space that is about your voice. Yeah. And I, I love that you are doing that and recognizing that that is what that, that writing is about. I used to journal back in the day and I've started really missing that and acknowledging that I do not, that I have not written down my perspective on life in a, in a bit. And just from a, just because of from we we have an archives as a part of the Louis Armstrong House Museum, and it's full of music and it's full of pictures and it's full of audio recordings. Writing is what is critically important, and we have to write we have to write our stories as well as all the other mediums that that we take on. It's writing things down critical, critically important. So I'm glad you're doing that. It's interesting. Because people don't write. I mean, we're literally not teaching kids to write. Yeah. The art of cursive writing. Yes. What a sad thing. Because if we don't write, there is no history. And words are recorded in other mediums, in, in digital media, which, which is excellent and hopefully long lasting. It may not be because modes of digital media become obsolete and and ways of accessing them become obsolete. So we have to actually print pictures and write letters and have those things that you can hold in your hands from an archival perspective to, along with the digital, to keep history. And I think about that when when I've been thinking more and more about libraries um, and about physical books. I have a really hard time with e-readers. It's challenging for me. I, I need the physical book most of the time, not all, but most of the time. And about all the libraries around our nation and for young people and how important they are. And it's, it's I know that libraries are under attack. And at just a word for the librarians, for the, for the teachers and educators out there, thank you for what you do. Your work is incredibly important. The, the library was a sanctuary for me as a young person. And so please keep doing what you do. We appreciate you. What is your take on that? I am most disturbed. Oh, yes. I am most disturbed by what is happening with books. Literally, we just, we are under attack. Mm-hmm. And that is why the voices matter. That's why the voices matter. That's why people have to stand up and say, this is not right. When you start selecting people's literature, we're in very dangerous territory. Yes, we are. And selecting people's literature means selecting people's thoughts. Books are powerful. And that's why they're being banned, because they are powerful. They open us up to other worlds, other concepts, other possibilities. 
that challenge us, challenge our worlds, challenge the concepts we have been taught. And that's scary. That's scary. And I I understand the desire to craft a world, to craft a a set of a a philosophy for a young person. I get that. But if, if you are cutting off entire swaths of peoples when you're doing that work, I'm thinking specifically about LGBTQ peoples, cutting off entire swaths of peoples and someone can't see themselves, a young person can't see themselves, that's dangerous. It's dangerous. So yeah, we're in a world of hurts, but the solution is for us to keep reading, to keep having those amazing experiences for young people to engage online, to explore the world externally and have the books that help them explore their world internally. They'll find, they'll find what they need to find. They'll find the source of education and thought that they need to find in a book and a person. Um, we just have to keep putting ourselves out there. We can ban all the books we want. Mm-hmm. We can stop publications on certain books. But if we don't talk about LGBTQIA issues in school, kids will still be gay. Yep. Kids will still be queer. Kids will still be straight. (laughs) If we don't, if we don't give kids sex ed, they're still going to have sex. So all of this world making and myth making that parts of the country seem to be engaged in right now is smoke and mirrors. Yes. We have some work to do. We We have have some some work work to to do. Regina, the second season of this show is about finding the voice. Yes. Finding one's voice, which is not unrelated to what we were just talking about, because I think writing is a voice and an author's perspective is their voice. You work with a man who had a unique voice, a voice that will resonate for centuries to come, probably. Where have you found your voice? Mm. And if you have, what, what, what do you want? What do you want to say? What? Now that you have the mic, what do you want us to, what do you want us oh, to Oh my goodness, passing me the mic. <laughs> um, I want to say thank you. Thank you to you. Thank you to family. Thank you to mentors and teachers. Thank you to peers. Thank you to artists who put their work out there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your vulnerability and drive that have taught me who, who I want to be. I want to say it's really good to pass the mic to someone, to other entities. This concept of, of saying, I have power and I'm going to give it to someone else, to some other entity, to some other organization actively because I can and because it's important. That is a, a critically generous act that will weave us together as a nation. We have to pass the mic to pass the power every now and again. I want to say I'm curious about justice. And that's one of the concepts that, of course, is always there, but I am um, thinking about now in the context of the ongoing fight for racial justice in America, but also in the context of all the, the interpersonal frictions that happen and what restorative justice means and what restorative justice means for the interpersonal 
for criminal justice, but for us as a nation. And I'm curious to delve into the concept of justice. And I hope that we all take that on as Americans, because our concept of American justice is very specific. And I think those are the things I want to say with my microphone. Thank you for passing it to me. I want to know what was your take on Will Smith and Chris Rock? Mm. Made me sad. It made me sad for Will and Jada and Chris and their families. It made me sad for all of us who had to watch that moment play out again and again as it was reported on. It made me sad. That's the biggest takeaway for me. Within the context of restorative justice, I think about what it means when someone is wrong. They're wrong. They're clearly wrong. And Mm. so what comes next after that? Mm. And I think that's hard for us as, as, a, as human beings and as a nation. I know when I'm harmed, I'm, I'm not necessarily the, the most forgiving of people, which is one of the reasons why I want, I want to, to delve into this concept of justice and restorative justice, because it's hard. Those, that's what I think. Mm. The overriding feeling is sadness. What do you think? Um. I thought it was a really bad day for Black men. Mm. I thought there's so many tropes about the angry Black man, about the violent Black man, that that image reinforced. Mm. And I thought how demeaning that must have been for Chris Rock to Mm. be hit in the face on worldwide television, billions of people watching have your pride just diminished. Mm. And I thought about all of the children at home whose mothers are being abused, who saw that Mm. and who know that vocabulary and understand what that means. And I thought this is a very, very sad day for black men, for black people, for people that we had this moment. I mean, they were ready to crown him the King of Hollywood. And in that, in, in that moment, his reason left him. And I was actually, I was actually depressed about it for a couple of days. And it made me think, cause this is how my mind works. I thought, well, we have two examples of how people can respond when their wives are under duress. And that was watching how Patrick, Dr. Patrick Jackson responded when his wife was up for her nomination for the Supreme Court and he had to sit there and take it and not respond. And then we have the other example of what you can do when your wife is attacked in your view, you can lash out. And to me, it was very two distinct options for what, what manhood looks like and how you choose to execute, how you choose to embody what it means to be a man in the world right now. For me, as, as a woman, I looked at it outside, outside of manhood. I have that privilege. What I saw was just pain, just raw pain. And I thought about, I thought about Black people. And then I said, mm-mm, mm-mm, this is about pain. Mm. And that's a, that's a privilege that I have 
not being a black man. It definitely touched a chord because people are still talking about it. And that was over a month ago. Mm-hmm. It will be interesting to see historically what comes after. Mm-hmm. We don't know that now because we're, we're living it, but what will shift mm-hmm. and how we will look back at that and go, oh, that was the moment when this led to that. Because mm. I think it's one of those moments. I think it's one of those moments. I really do. I hope it leads to something better for all of us, for all of them. Regina, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, <laughs> for making space for good thoughts, conversation, reflection, struggle. Thank you. More, to, right. more of that to come. So thank you, Regina, again, for this season, the season before, the 25 years before, I value you. I have immense respect for you and your knowledge and your view and your words, I think, are, are really what the, what the world needs right now. So I'm glad you come on here and, and, and share a little bit with us. Thank you. <laughs> to miss those of you, I miss you too. I need <laughs> to get to New York and see you. I mean, we're close, but we're not that close. But I need to come see you. Soon. Soon. To those of you who are watching or listening, remember, we all have a voice. So use yours wisely. Thanks, Regina.